Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans. Let's get started. Joining me today is Austin Berg, Vice President of Marketing at the Illinois Policy Institute, who will be breaking down Illinois' public corruption problem and why it matters to you. Austin, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Austin, why are you so interested in public corruption? I think when I talk to people in Illinois, whether it's my family, I'm from here, my family, people in Chicago especially, I feel like that's the lens through which almost everyone understands politics in Illinois which is really sad, but it's also like the reality that you must confront. But that's sort of the, the square one that people are at in terms of Illinois politics. We have the lowest trust in our state government of residents of any other state by far. And a lot of it is because the public trust has been violated so many times. And the problem with that really, like of course there's an economic cost to corruption. There's bad policies because of corruption, but one of the most, uh, important effects to think about is that it just totally kills and degrades public trust in any institution. So it's very hard to get anything done, whether it's improve education or, you know, fix the pension system or, you know, so many things because there's no trust in our, in their institutions because they've proven time and time and again, they don't have voters interests at heart. There's like these personal political interests at heart at the city level and at the state level. So in short, like I think it's because one, it's the thing that I think Illinois voters are extremely interested in. And two, it's this force that kind of underlies everything. It's like it's every single policy issue um, it affects because it affects our trust in institutions. So you wrote the book on this, kind of. And I was leafing through this before we got started. And I found this chapter. So for anyone who doesn't know what I'm holding in my hands right now, because how would you? Austin wrote a book called The New Chicago Way, and you published it in 2016, right? Uh, Twenty. 19. Oh, 2019. January okay. 2019. Um, so I was leafing through this book and I saw on page 130, you have this chart and it's Chicago city officials convicted of corruption. And you went from 2007 to 2017. Um, why did you add this chapter of the book? Maybe tell people what the book's about, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, the book is about this radical notion that people in Chicago and public officials in Chicago should look to other cities to see what's worked instead of just trying over and over again and failing to solve our problems. So it compares Chicago to the 14 other big cities in the country that together compose the 15 uh, largest, and it goes by institution. So we talk about how city council is different, how school governance is different, police, um, corruption we talk about, uh, all different types of city government. We compare Chicago to 15 other largest cities. We find that on so many things, Chicago is an outlier, whether it's on quality of our education system, our tax burden, our burden of debt, our number of city council people who are convicted of corruption. And why is that? Oftentimes because year after year, decade after decade, our public officials make really poor decisions. And those poor decisions oftentimes come from this really outdated form of governance that encourages, among other things, corruption. So what's kind of really interesting, and what I think people don't understand necessarily about Chicago is Chicago gets this really bad rap in Illinois, right? It's like that's the heart of corruption. Everything bad politically comes out of there. The problem is corruption is very bipartisan and spread is, is throughout the state in Illinois. And what's funny is if you look at 
public corruption convictions in Chicago over the last 10 years per capita were not that much worse than other big cities. Chicago is not. That's partially because we have a really good inspector general's office that has really broad powers that have it's really emerged in the last decade where we are an extreme outlier. And this applies to all sorts of things in Illinois government where we're an extreme outlier is in the city council. No other big city in the country has so many city council members convicted on corruption charges. And that's because of the powers we entrust them. So that gets us to this, this idea, which is very important for people to think about, that corruption, it's not only about finding and catching the men and women who are doing bad, illegal and bad things. That addresses part of it. Punishing, finding, rooting out uh, corruption at the individual level is important. But clearly, if that was the only solution, corruption would have been lessened by now in the Chicago City Council. Right now, there's three of them that are under indictment. Six percent of the Chicago City Council is under indictment right now. And that's not a new problem. We've had, I believe it's over, over 40 aldermen convicted over the, since the 70s of corruption. So clearly, you have, there's an underlying structural governance problem that's causing all this corruption and that's encouraging it. And it can't simply be fixed by either like raising a white flag, like sending out flares to the federal government saying, come save us. We have to like fix ourselves before we can expect that to go away. And we can come back to the book later. I'm sure we probably will. But um, another area of expertise for you, you're probably the country's foremost expert on Mike Madigan. It's kind of a goofy title, but it's true. And I think not necessarily in the sense that you know what his favorite serial is or something, but you have studied his um, political career and how he has gained so much power, well, had gained so much power, and what the implications of that are. And so I wanted to just ask you a little bit about your study of, of his career and when you're talking about building systems and the corruption problem isn't just people, it's these systems. So how is Mike Madigan kind of this microcosm of Illinois' corruption problem? That's a great question. So when I think about this book, the story that I like to tell that inspired me to work on this at first was something that we both worked on, this food cart campaign in Chicago. So for people who don't know, food carts were illegal in the city for decades. All these women, predominantly Latina women on uh, in neighborhoods like Pilsen or Little Village, they sell sliced fruit or they sell hot chocolate. And this was illegal for decades because brick and mortar businesses lobbied against them and they didn't want that competition. So they had to operate in this underground economy that was very dangerous to them. Many of them had their food thrown out. Many of them were robbed often. And we got to go to city council and see all these women be so happy that finally this license passed and they could finally have a legitimate business in the eyes of the city. And then what happened? One by one, Alderman after alderman is like, not on this block, not next to this business, not in my ward. That was like a structural thing. Similarly, my fascination with Madigan started when, working at Illinois Policy, we would see these ideas that had broad bipartisan support, huge support across the state from every type of voter, and they just wouldn't move. For some reason, like the political system was not at all reflective of even the most popular um, bipartisan ideas from most of the people in Illinois. And the problem was the same. Like it was a structural problem. The biggest question we would get over and over in Illinois policy is what do we do about Mike Madigan? What do we do about Mike Madigan? And similarly to this like apathy and lack of trust in institutions, people like, we can't do anything because Madigan says we can't do anything, right? 
And that's a really horrible way to not even like think about public policy, but just to live your life. Like, oh, there's just this guy somewhere who just can thwart anything you want at any time. Like, we might as well just not care. We might as well give up and leave. And so um, I became obsessed with sort of figuring out what the how he amassed this power. And he did it in a, a number of ways. Um, I'd like to talk about the maps, his money, and the rules. Three things. So the first is the maps. I'll start with that because we just saw a very, very recently like this play out again as it did under Madigan because that structure hasn't been fixed. But he became speaker in the first place not because of passing some amazing policy or raising a bunch of money. He became speaker because he drew the best map. So after the 1980 census, Illinois Democrats were supposed to lose a bunch of seats because people were emptying out of the, out, emptying out of the city of Chicago. Mike Madigan and all his cunning drew a map that protected so many Illinois Democrats, got it passed, uh, and many people uh, owed their seat to him, and they elected him speaker in 1983. He would continue to serve in that role for every year except for two uh, until this last year. So he started with the map. That's an example of what I would call somewhat legal corruption in Illinois, politicians being able to pick their voters. And Madigan was able to wield that map to get votes that he wanted. So even if 80% of Illinois voters wanted term limits on the Speaker of the House, Mike Madigan could go to lawmakers before an election and say something like, you shouldn't vote on this because I control your district. He would never be so open as to say something like that, but everybody knows that he has the power to do that, and it concentrates all his power in one person. So those are the maps. Second is the money. So this is another structural thing. He served as the chair of the Democratic Party while serving as the legislative leader. He was the only legislator in the country who had something like that, had an had a arrangement like that. And what happened there was essentially he melded politics and policy together. And, so, and they're always, you know, somewhat connected, but hand in glove to where if you voted against him, he immediately had control of the entire party apparatus and all of that money to come after you. So he's able to enforce sort of discipline that way. Um, he also made a ton of money. So this is another form of legal corruption that still is allowed to happen in Illinois, serving as a property tax attorney. So again, never like, as far as we know, explicitly going to people and saying, hey, if you want this passed, you need to retain my law firm to lower your property tax bill, right? He would never be that stupid as to say something like that out in the open. But he did what I would consider to be corruption, which is he traded the public trust and his public position for private gain. People weren't hiring Mike Madigan necessarily because he's some wizard at property tax appeals. It's because he has political connections. And it's because if you hire him, you may, he may take some action that's beneficial to you or at least not harm you actively in the legislature. And then, so we've got the maps, we've got the money, and then the rules. So Mike Madigan in the House had, was the most powerful House Speaker in the country because of all of these House rules that lawmakers pass every year governing how a bill becomes a law. And so much of that power was invested in the Speaker's office, whether it's who sits on committees, when bills can be called. Um, he could literally swap members of committees in real time to get the votes that he wanted. Um, sort of one-man rule in the House. And that's what's important, I think, in Illinois, is where you have these concentrations of power, like you did with Madigan, 
and like you still do under some of these systems that haven't been reformed yet, you will get corruption 100% of the time over, over a period of time. Maybe you won't see it today. At some point, that power will be traded for private gain if you don't have systems in place that prevent it. So Madigan really shows the, the, that phrase of like absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was given so much power centrally to him, um, and he traded that for private gain all the time. And some of those things haven't been reformed. Some of them have been. House rules, we've seen a little bit of change, which is great. There's actually term limits for the Speaker of the House and the House rules now for the first time. That's unheard of. Um, but there's still things like, you know, we can move 1,500 pages of legislation in the blink of an eye. And when there's institutions set up like that, you're going to have corruption as a result. People can't see what's going on. They can't contact their lawmaker. Lawmakers can easily horse trade by keeping everything hidden and then as soon as there is agreement, moving it at the last second. So Madigan is gone, which is huge. That's a huge win for, uh, for Illinoisans, but it won't matter unless those institutions that he built are also reformed. It's really interesting because, I mean, all of what you just said is an incredible distillation of like everything you've ever written about him. Um, so I thought that was awesome, but the bigger point about public corruption, and I think this is where this is such a hard issue, uh, is because it's such a nebulous term. Like People don't really get what it means. Is it stealing? Is it lying? What is it? How does it affect me? And I, when I think about public corruption, and I try to think about it from the point of view of someone who just doesn't live in this space, they don't think about this stuff all the time, it, it, the, what I feel from other people who, who are living their daily lives like that is that they know that there is a system. Actually, they might not even know that there's a system, but they feel like nothing will ever change. Mm -hmm. So there's this system out there that people may or may not know about that keeps things from happening or maintains things going the same way they always have gone. And to your point about food carts, you know, even when there is marginal change for the better, we have people in neighborhoods like Lincoln Park or Lakeview or wherever, and the aldermen are able to say, all right, well, I know that everyone wanted this, but I don't want this here, so I'm going to carve it out. Mm -hmm. um, but on the flip side of that, don't you think that there was a lot of frustration after Madigan left by the insiders? Because So we're talking about a system that people may or may not know about, and it controls every aspect of government here. But if you're in the system, it maintains order. So yeah, yeah. maybe they like it. Oh, definitely. I mean, Madigan made life really, really easy for, there was this phrase of, uh, maybe I shouldn't say it on this podcast, we'd say it, like Madigan's mushrooms, where it was his caucus, because you kept them in the dark and you fed them what mushrooms eat, which is not good. Um, <laughs> and that's basically like, a, they kind of had this like fat, happy life where they didn't really do much because this one person was able to control everything. That is a huge change from then until now. And one thing I think Speaker Welch, who's the, the new House Speaker, has probably realized is that governing that way, the way Madigan did, is extremely taxing, exhausting, and ultimately not sustainable. Um, you think of like, like Otto von Bismarck or some figure like this who had this crazy complex web of international relations and like would never, no other person would ever be able to understand all the cross-compromise you have to make. And then that guy leaves and then the whole thing collapses which is kind of what we're seeing happening a little bit in the Illinois Democratic Party. Like 
how do we deal with the trial bar, the unions, elections, all of these things were really, really complicated. And Madigan kind of kept them all greased and everybody happy and fed. That's not the case anymore. So I think to your point, like it's important that people realize that system can change because many other states have changed it. And there's very easy ideas that we can adopt from other states that would help us. And we got a little bit of the way down the field this last legislative session, inspired by really high-profile cases of cartoonishly corrupt lawmakers. So we got things like the first-ever revolving door period, which is now um, six months. And which what do you mean by that? That is uh, essentially in Illinois, you can, for a long time, you could retire as a lawmaker who was chair of the Energy Committee, for example, on a Tuesday, and get a job and retire and get a job lobbying for the energy industry on a Wednesday. Many lawmakers did exactly that. Um, maybe not that cartoonishly short time frame, but deciding policy over a huge industry and then going to work and lobby for that industry immediately. A revolving door says no. There needs to be a cooling off period where you you cannot lobby the government. Uh, we also got there was a rule put in place that state lawmakers can no longer lobby local government. Which is another thing where, like, you tell people from other states that, and they look at you like you have three heads. Like your law, your state lawmakers can lobby local government, though they control like everything about local government. Isn't that unfair? And will become corrupt? Yes. Um, and now, thankfully, that's not uh, allowed in Illinois. Um, the inspector general is another good example. Chicago's inspector general is pretty strong. In Springfield, it has been described as a lapdog position as people who have by people who have held the position, which is when you know it's like really messed up is when the old inspector general is saying, this is, this is useless. You guys need to change this. Um, that inspector general would need to go to a panel of lawmakers before starting an investigation into a lawmaker. Well, like how do you think that's going to um, bear out, right? Lawmakers are going to protect their own regardless of what party they're in. So those were a couple of changes. And then we also need to look at disclosure of conflicts of interest. So for a long time, lawmakers really didn't, there was no real punishment or any kind of teeth behind any rules that said, hey, you need to declare a conflict of interest or you need to say that your uh, wife or husband has a job at the water reclamation district that you're just voting to give half a billion dollars, for example. Like you should have to disclose that. That's in the public interest. So all these areas are structural things that can be done Instead of doing silly things like uh, saying, okay, well, the feds are on Madigan's tail. Like corruption is fixed in Illinois. That's not how it works. So one of the areas that you just mentioned, the watchdog in charge of overseeing basically any ethics complaints or, or anything that happens in Springfield. So what we're looking at for this upcoming legislative agenda, pardon me, legislative session is empowering the legislative inspector general what what does that mean exactly and what does the legislative inspector general do for people who don't know yeah that person's basically responsible for enforcing ethics and rooting out corruption in state government Um, we have one for the governor's office called the executive inspector general that oversees the departments and then there's one called the legislative inspector general that's responsible for the house and the senate and their staffs so this is the person who basically is supposed to hold lawmakers to account. They are the watchdog for that body. The problem is, for a long time, that watchdog needed permission 
it was like, you know, classic like fox guarding the henhouse situation. They needed permission from lawmakers in order to issue a subpoena or start an investigation. I believe they couldn't take anonymous complaints for a long time, which is like if you if you were going to make a complaint against Mike Madigan's organization and you had to have your name on it, you're basically signing your own, you know, professional death sentence in Illinois. And there's some really horrible consequences to this. One of them was all these revelations of sexual harassment um, and misconduct in Madigan's political organization. When you don't feel like you can go up to anyone for those sorts of ethics violations, of course that's going to fester um, and that culture is going to take hold in your political organization. So, yeah, the inspector general is supposed to be a watchdog. The problem is it has historically not been empowered to be that. One of the other reforms that I really like um, is that we're proposing requiring a three-day reading requirement. And this would fix something that Madigan really liked to do, which would be to surprise people with votes, right? Oh, totally. The less transparency there is in the political process and the faster it moves, the more it advantages people with the most power. Because you can't, most Illinoisans don't have a lobbyist on their behalf in Springfield phoning them up and telling them, hey, this is going to move. I think this, you know, here's like giving them the inside scoop. So you have things like the state budget, tens of billions of dollars being plopped on voters, the media, and, you know, independent watchdog groups 24 hours before it's passed. That's not going to be a good piece of legislation. People haven't had time to, to vet it at all. We see that. Now, this happens. This is one of those things where it's like it's so clear that the process is broken based on the results. We have the worst pension debt of any state in the nation. We have the worst credit rating. Uh, and yet some pe- people somehow are confused why that's happened. Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that our budgeting is done completely behind closed doors and nobody knows what's in the budget until moments before they pass it. Maybe lawmakers should read the budget before it's passed. Maybe that would help. So putting in these safeguards of saying, okay, the bill's introduced. You can't, you have to hear it in a committee and people will have to testify. Uh, there has to be a certain number of days that people can review the legislation, vote on it in one chamber, pass to the other chamber, go to a committee vote there then to a floor vote. Like it builds in these these safeguards that you can root out, uh, you know, waste and pork and corruption. The biggest example of this recently was the transportation package. Shaver Pritzker passed his massive gas tax hike and transportation bill also extremely quickly. And the chair of the Senate Transportation Committee at the time and the chair of the Senate of the House Transportation Committee at the time were both indicted for corruption like less than two years after that happened. So you need to you need to put in safeguards against actions like that. Maybe we should let the lawmakers read the budget before they vote on it. Yeah. That seems like such that's a simple right. idea. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, you keep using this word cartoonish. I think that's funny. But it's it's not it's, – it's very apt because – and especially for Madigan, I think that a lot of partisan folks just started saying, blame Madigan for your high taxes oh, or totally. blame Madigan for this and that. And it's like blame Madigan for the sky being cloudy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but it it's it really is one of those things where it's like okay well Madigan again is like this microcosm of everything that's wrong yeah. and what's wrong is this systemic corruption and so really you know corruption isn't removed from things like why are taxes so high and why don't we ever tackle the pension crisis i mean how are all of these things woven together how would you summarize that for people i would say they're woven together because 
when lawmakers are acting in their personal interest and they exist in a political culture that is built for them to advance their personal interests, the results for everyone else, the results for the governed, are always going to be poor. Like there's, I love this phrase about um, Illinois politics. Like it's not broken, it's fixed. The system isn't necessarily broken. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do, which is to advance the interests of very powerful political interests in the state, whether that's public sector union leaders, the trial bar, or individual lawmakers. So when you are in a political culture that that's the norm, that that's how that's if you've ever thought about like being in a really toxic like work environment where everybody's kind of like uh, either like you you're at a retail location where yeah people just take money from the cash register the employees of the store think yeah it's fine like whatever that's that's cool or the manager of the store you know acts ridiculously or or in some unethical manner and that's oh that's just how that person is right that over years and years and years never being held accountable creates a really toxic environment. And that's the case in Illinois. So when you have a, a culture like that, you're never thinking about things like, man, if we put, if we pass 3% compounding interest raises, because that's what this government union boss asked me to do. And if I don't do it, he's going to try to run someone against me and he's not going to contribute to my campaign. That person's not thinking about the financial consequences of that action like 30 years from now. Whereas if they were acting in the public interest, they would. So, um, yeah, it's it's sort of a it's the opposite of a service mentality. It's a what's in it for me mentality. And that's like the cost that's the cost of this corrupt political culture that exists in Illinois that can only be fixed with changing the system. Right. And even if people don't know what the system is or how it works or who is in the system, they feel it. And we see that because we track things like, well, what's economic growth look like here? And what's our population decline look like? And it's really upsetting because when people sense that, and they sense that people that they elect aren't going to work on their behalf, then they do drastic things like leave. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, we've sort of talked Mike Matting into death for a long time. But now that he's gone, do you feel hopeful that we're going to get the corruption problem under control and then that the system is going to evolve and change for the better so that all of these other problems can get addressed? Yes. And there's and this was I was really frustrated by it because right when Madigan was sort of fired by his own colleagues, that would represented such a momentous win for the people of Illinois because the reason it happened – was for the first time lawmakers were more afraid of their constituents than they were of Mike Madigan, which is exactly what we're talking about. They were accountable to their constituents in taking that vote, not to a legacy political power structure. So when Madigan went down, there was immediately this sort of like poo-pooing of this as a big deal by a lot of people who had historically, you know, hated, hated Madigan and what he did to the state. Um, and I thought that was a slap in the face to a lot of Illinoisans for whom he represented so much of what was wrong. Now, with that sort of brick removed, you see things like these sorts of ethics changes, which while minor, were unfathomable for three decades in the state. That's the biggest ethics reform package that's been passed probably in three or four decades. And it only happened because Madigan is gone. And you look at a city like Chicago where, again, was the 
almost global face of political corruption. And yet now it has one of the most empowered inspector general's offices in the country and it's middle of the pack for political corruption. Like in our own state, there's examples of how these systems can change over time. So I'm really positive about it. I think there's a whole new crop. What's really interesting to me is there's a whole new crop of Democratic and Republican representatives who haven't had to work and exist under that legacy system. Um, which is really encouraging. So there's tons more fights that need to be had. Ethics, we need, we have the most serious ethics problem in the country, so we need the most serious and extreme ethics package to address it. This is nowhere near that. But I think the ball's totally moving in the right direction on that issue. What I love about working with you is that, I mean, you rolled up your sleeves and you were looking at this for years and years and years, and you know how big the problems are, but you're really hopeful about the possibility of fixing things. And I mean, I think you, you do a good job of throwing out good ideas. And obviously when, you know, Madigan left, people were looking for good ideas and we got a lot of these good ideas baked into what did ultimately pass. So I'm just grateful to you for breaking this down for everybody because I think you do such a good job. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit IllinoisPolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.